welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Matthew Bruckner, an associate professor at Howard University School of Law. My guest tonight is William Organic, the program fellow at the Bankruptcy Project at Harvard Law School. And Billy's here to talk tonight about a bit of result, Purdue Pharma, a Sackler bankruptcy filing, and improving monetary and non-monetary recoveries in mass tort bankruptcies. Billy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. We're delighted to, uh, to hear you uh, talk about this, this new project. So can you give the sort of, you know, short elevator pitch for the project? Yeah, sure. Uh, right. So Purdue Pharma manufactures OxyContin uh, and they file for bankruptcy to resolve their mass tort liabilities after, you know, an avalanche of several thousand uh, uh, cases being brought against them. Right. Uh, the Sackler family owned and controlled uh, the company and they were estimated to be worth about $12 billion dollars. Uh, and they used the company's bankruptcy to obtain civil immunity for themselves in exchange for a financial contribution of about $5 billion over a period of uh, a number of years. But no member of the Sackler family, importantly, filed for bankruptcy. Meanwhile, there's a very strong record suggesting that the Sacklers removed billions of dollars from the company and stuck the money in spendthrift trusts both in the United States and abroad to make it far more difficult for creditors to get to that money. Uh, and so, you know, the case attracted a lot of uh, attention and a lot of negative criticism and a lot of uh, claims by people saying, you know, this is really unfair and the Sacklers should have to file for bankruptcy if they're going to use the bankruptcy process in this way. And so I wanted to look at that specific claim of the Sacklers and whether or not they should have to file for bankruptcy. There's obviously the moral dimension there. It seems very unfair. But, um, you know, a number of people argued that creditors actually would have been better off had the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy. And I kind of, after doing a deep dive in the case, uh, you know, I, I reached the what I think is somewhat counterintuitive finding that actually the people who I think matter most in the case, the individual creditors, uh, the victims, they would not have been helped and they actually would have been harmed by a Sackler filing. And they wouldn't have been harmed uh, because the way that the Sacklers kind of held their money and the way that fraudulent transfer law is set up, uh, a Sackler bankruptcy filing would have actually locked up more money rather than freeing more money for creditors. Uh, and then separately, it would have really harmed creditors' dignitary rights, ultimately. It would have made it far more difficult for creditors to get the types of non-monetary vindication that they wanted, like the Sacklers exiting uh, the opioid business, like removal of their names from various institutions that have received charity from them and um, putting together a document repository. Uh, so that's basically the, uh, the, the pitch of the, art, of the uh, article. Great. Thank you. Um, so it, you said that it seemed unfair to people. It, why did it seem unfair to people? That uh, What about this case seemed unfair to people? Yeah. So, you know, generally speaking, kind of, uh, you know, the man on the street, the person on the street, I should say, view of bankruptcy is you're out of money. Uh, and so the idea that the Sacklers, uh, you know, states and individuals filed hundreds of billions, uh, one claim was for $100 trillion in the case, and, you know, hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of other claims in the case, uh, and yet the Sacklers are going to end up not having filed for bankruptcy, but walking away with probably half or a little more of their wealth kind of intact at the end of this. And there's something that just fundamentally seems really unfair and wrong about an outcome like that. Meanwhile, individual creditors, uh, the large 
I'd say the the large share of individual creditors are only going to receive a few thousand dollars in payment. And that's, you know, pretty cold comfort for someone whose mother or sister or cousin or whatever died of an opioid overdose. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it certainly touched many, many lives. Um, and I can see why that would feel unfair for those actors to leave with, uh, with a lot of their wealth intact. Um, and um, you... The paper also, you said, uh, talks about um, this push for a Sackler bankruptcy filing, um, and, uh, and you're, you're, in your paper, you argue that um, the bankruptcy filing would not have improved either monetary or non-monetary recoveries. That's right. Um, can you say a little bit more about why that is? Why would a bankruptcy filing by the Sacklers not have been um, you know, fair? Yeah, so so I would not. Um, I I'd want to stay away from characterizing a Sackler bankruptcy filing as as fair or not. I I, um, I think that there's no way to look at this case and say that uh, you know justice has been done. I think that there's some rough justice and some people you know who hopefully will be helped, but I don't think that it's a good outcome. And I, I think most people maybe other than the Sacklers would say that it's not a good outcome for the Sacklers to walk away with, you know, $6 billion uh, or $5 billion, whatever the number is at the end. Um, but I think that the way that our law is set up, you actually would end up with the individual creditors receiving less money if they had, if the Sacklers had filed for bankruptcy and you'd also have individual creditors not receive some of those non-monetary rights that, that I mentioned earlier. So I'll kind of talk about each in turn. Um, so on the, uh, on the monetary side of things, right? So, you know, there are uh, dozens of members of the Sackler family and probably 10 or so who are involved in the company. And they in turn have dozens or even hundreds of trusts that they use to hold all of their wealth. Uh, and so seeking a Sackler bankruptcy filing, right, seeking those kind of 10 or 12 people most involved, say, to file for bankruptcy, uh, you probably wouldn't get at the money that you really wanted to get at. Maybe those, you know, 10 or 12 who are most involved have some portion of money, but they probably don't have all the money or even most of the money, um, Trusts are actually ineligible to file for bankruptcy, so you couldn't get the trusts to file for bankruptcy. Uh, and then the kind of other aspect of it really is um, the idea that the company, the kind of ownership of the company, was really one of the Sacklers' main assets. The the, the company Purdue and, and its various affiliates that kind of sold similar products all around the world, and they had structured their ownership in such a way that simply getting a small portion of the company would be really a lot less valuable than getting 100% of the company. So if you only held 49% of the company, you wouldn't be able to do anything with it. So no one would want to purchase 49% of the company, so you need to get the whole thing. But if you only had, to say, 10 Sacklers that were active file for bankruptcy, then they wouldn't, uh, any, any kind of potential owner wouldn't be able to get, you know, the full value of those assets. So I, you do talk about this some in the paper, um, and um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. So you know, you say that you know there's ten to twelve Sacklers who may not have had that much money, and because their spendthrift trusts are not included, and that if we had only forty nine percent ownership, that would be enough that we needed 
I thought you said we needed 100% ownership, but why isn't 51% ownership sufficient? And do we know exactly how much the, you know, the 10 to 12 most involved SACs, people we think of being sort of most culpable, do we actually know how much money they had? Yeah, so they released pretty detailed. It took a long time and there were fights over it. But in the end, they did receive, release rather quite detailed uh, financial reports. I, um, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly how much they, they kind of held individually. And, and also, you know, for, for a family that's got billions of dollars of assets, these financial reports are hundreds of pages long. Uh, so, you know, and, and sometimes it would consolidate, well, you know, uh, uh, Richard Sackler has 17 trusts, uh, you know, where he's the beneficiary. And so what is his kind of, and maybe other people are beneficiaries. So what is his share of that? Um, the kind of short answer though, is they had money definitely. Uh, and certainly by kind of mere mortal standards, they had, you know, wildly, uh, they were wildly wealthy, but, um, trying to get those 10 or 12 who were, say, most active to file for bankruptcy and take all of their ownership, um, A, that wouldn't even get you to 51. uh, And I don't remember, uh, frankly, I'm not sure whether 51 would be enough because the company was set up in such a way, so there were kind of two branches of the Sackler family to kind of uh, make it simple. They called it the Mortimer branch and the Raymond branch uh, from, you know, the patriarch of the family. And half of those people lived outside of the United States uh, and you had to have for major decisions of the company, you had to have uh, agreement from the Mortimer side and the Raymond side. So even if you had all of the ownership say on the Raymond side, if you didn't have the ownership on the Mortimer side too, that wouldn't kind of get you what you need, which is control of the company. Gotcha. And so I, you know, Completely understand you don't have all the, the numbers uh, from the hundreds of pages uh, top of mind. Uh, but I think I think the big takeaway is that even if we uh, were able to get at all of the wealth and all of the control from the most involved Sacklers, that was going to yield a lower monetary recovery for creditors than the so-called voluntary contribution by the Sackler family. Is that Signi- right? Yeah, significantly lower. I think that's right. And I think it's important to remember that the, the, the reason for that is, you know, you can imagine families uh, with kind of lots of children and grandchildren, etc., uh, you know, separating their wealth fairly equitably. And so if there are 70 members of the family and you only have 12 of the members of the family within your kind of dragnet, you're just only getting a sixth or something like that of the wealth. Sure. And you're, and you're suggesting that the creditors are getting approximately half of the wealth. And so that's a, you know, um, almost a fourfold improvement, uh, um, in recovery. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I guess maybe threefold. Um, um, all right. So one of the things you did talk about too, was that, you know, they came up with a lot of disclosure voluntarily, but that it was drawn out and painful at times. And now there are, there are, Bankruptcy is often uh, portrayed as a way to sort of, you know, shine a light on what's going on at a company. And one of the tools in particular we have is the appointment of an examiner. Mm. Uh, now, an examiner in this case was eventually appointed, but was very contentious. Can you talk a little bit about why a filing uh, uh, by the family uh, and appointment of an examiner to their um finances or why a, a, an appointment by an examiner in the Purdue case that actually, you know, that, that 
was actually appointed, why that was so contentious, what they might have done differently. Yeah, um, right. So kind of taking a step back, examiners are third parties appointed by the court to investigate acts of the debtor and the management. Um, So in the case of Purdue, you probably would not have needed to have the Sacklers file for bankruptcy to have an, an examiner investigate the things that people cared about, which was why were the Sacklers siphoning off money, certain aspects of the management of the company, sales practices, you know, those types of things, you probably wouldn't need the um, the Sacklers to file for bankruptcy themselves. Um, so, you know, the the... I think the question of why it was so contentious here in uh, in Purdue, I ultimately think that it it's um, it's kind of a judicial orientation question. So, and this this is kind of a broader strain in uh, or, or uh, in in you know my work in this paper and in future papers as well. It's the idea of kind of how well designed is bankruptcy for resolving mass torts and kind of dignitary questions, finding out what happened and receiving an apology uh, when bankruptcy is really set up as a financial kind of resolution process and bankruptcy is being used more and more to resolve mass torts. So it's kind of a growing, a question of growing importance. Um, So in the case of of appointing an examiner, uh, judges often look at examiners in major cases and say, this is a waste of estate resources. So the estate, the debtor, is the one who pays for the filing of the examiner. And the examiner reports often are seen as taking a long time, being duplicative of the type of research that uh, you know creditor groups are already doing. And they see it as not generating additional value, but kind of adding to cost. And so that leads to, and other scholars have identified, that leads to a reticence on the part of judges to appoint examiners, even though the statute's pretty clear that it's mandatory in cases where there's more than $5 million of debt. Um, So, you know, I think in the Purdue case in particular, you're right, an examiner was ultimately appointed, but they were... um, they were given a budget of $200,000 to perform their examination, which, you know, the Sacklers spent hundreds of millions of dollars in their legal defense. So $200,000 is a pretty small amount of money by comparison. They were given 25 days to do their job, and their whole remit was limited to one particular question about the extent of Sackler control over the proposal of the kind of overall plan and the involvement of the third party releases. So the examiner that actually was appointed in the case never even got to touch the questions that I think would be most important for individual victims. How did this happen? What kind of, you know, sales practices were the Sacklers undertaking that were wrong? Or, you know, what kind of other rules were they breaking those types of things? Yeah, and even that I understand uh, was um, hard to come by, and that uh, Professor Jonathan Lipson, one of our bankruptcy colleagues, um, uh, was uh, sort of put forward the motion on behalf of uh, some of the creditors and got um, uh, a hard time uh, for doing so. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's right, and and Jonathan's a, a friend, and um, you know I have nothing but respect for the work that he did in this case. Um, 
I think ultimately, again, it speaks to the idea that there is some reticence on the part of judges, at least some judges, to get an examiner involved because they see it as duplicative and, and kind of a waste of time and resources. And I think more specifically in this case, um, I think Judge Drain ultimately saw an examiner as a distraction from the real issue, in air quotes, the real issue being how do we get the Sacklers and the claimants into a room to agree on a number when many people ultimately said, you can't pay me enough money. The amount of money doesn't matter. What I need to know is what happened, you know, to lead to my brother's death, what happened, you know, to cause all of this to happen. And I think to some extent there is an orientation in bankruptcy from, you know, from judges to practitioners, uh, you know, all the way through that it's all about money. And I think in these mass store bankruptcies, you know, in particular, it's not all about money. Great. Yeah. So I'd love to, uh, to have you talk more about that. So, right. Your paper is called, uh, improving monetary and non-monetary recoveries. Uh, and I'd love to, um, I, I mean, I agree that lots of bankruptcy judges are focused on the monetary recoveries and that examiners in particular, though mandatory under the statute, it would seem, um, often, um, they're, they're not free and, uh, and judges, I agree with you. Absolutely. They're reticent to appoint them or they do appoint them and give them a very circumscribed scope. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about both, um, bankruptcies focus on monetary recoveries, um, but also ways in which we could in general focus on non-monetary recoveries and ways in, in that this case did focus uh, on non-monetary or it, ways in which this case uh, prioritized some non-monetary values over maximizing distributions to creditors. Yeah. Um, so I think in, in some ways, this is a really, you know, this, this debate is an old debate. I think it goes back to, you know, uh, Douglas Baird and Elizabeth Warren kind of having it out in the late 80s, early 90s about, you know, is bankruptcy about just maximizing creditor recoveries, helping the economy, lowering credit, you know, the cost of credit for borrowers, or is it about, you know, other kind of social policy, uh, right? Douglas Baird representing the first camp and Elizabeth Warren representing more the second camp. Um, and, you know, I, I, um, I think that those questions are maybe easier to answer in these mass tort bankruptcy cases because ultimately I, I though they're using the procedural form of bankruptcy I think that they are really kind of they're like class actions they're another way to try and resolve you know bigger questions broader wrongs that extend beyond just money um, so I think in these cases uh, it is important for judges, for, you know, practitioners, for any kind of player in this system to recognize that at least in the subset of cases where we're talking about resolving mass torts uh, for, you know, involuntary creditors who are harmed by uh, the, the, the actions of a company uh, and didn't sign up, you know, in any kind of way, I think that the, the whole system needs to give a harder look to resolving uh, and, and thinking about kind of non-monetary recoveries. Um, so I think in Purdue in particular, uh, they did um, focus more on non-monetary recoveries, though, though and, and, and kind of focus on vindicating some of those dignitary rights, though 
I think it was to some extent an afterthought. And I think it was something that um, was, you know, ultimately they're difficult to quantify, right? Uh, The bankruptcy code is designed to maximize creditor recoveries. And we know that $6 billion is more than $5 billion. But if, you know, there are a lot of creditors who in this case would say, I'll take less money if that means that I get an apology from the Sacklers. I'll take less money if that means that I will... That, that the case will institute some kind of way, and this eventually did happen in the case for uh, you know various uh, museums and schools to remove the Sackler name from their uh, you know from from their medical schools, from their wings of the museum, whatever the case may be. Um, I think that the these these end up being really important. Uh, in cases, and you're seeing it come across in in other mass tort bankruptcies too. And so, I think to some extent, you can learn from uh, Purdue and how Purdue ultimately tried to get some kind of non monetary recoveries. And and one last one I'll mention is um, so Judge Drain was the judge who was hearing the case, but he appointed Judge Chapman, who's another judge in the Southern District of New York to do a number of mediations in the case. And in her final report, in the final mediation, she said, you know, basically, look, I'm not the judge in this case, but I strongly urge you, Judge Train, to hold a victim's hearing, to basically allow victims, and they eventually did, and they got about a dozen or so victims, um, and they got, I think, three members of the Sackler family to sit in, uh, and they uh, they just talked about their loved ones and, and what they had lost and, and you know, how kind of OxyContin uh, ruined their lives or harmed them. And I think it was incredibly powerful and, and something that, uh, you know, there's no, there's no monetary value that could be attached to that, but it's incredibly important and it kind of doesn't fit with the typical paradigm of, you know, Chapter 11 corporate bankruptcy. Thank you. Um, well, I know one of the the things that, that people seem to want was uh, for the Sacklers not to, uh, well, they wanted lots of bad things for the Sacklers. Uh, one of the things they wanted for the Sacklers was for them to be, uh, sorry, the, the helicopter here in DC, uh, was for them to no longer be involved in the businesses, uh, to sort of, um, uh, to be sort of, you know, sort of, out of the opioid business entirely, mm-hmm. uh, not just Purdue. Uh, now, um, I, I don't actually recall this in the paper. You were very generous and came to my class to give a talk as well, and you talked about this issue there as well. But um, you, you talked about the, at least in class, if not the paper, so please excuse me, about the Sacklers agreeing to um, to not be involved in the opioid businesses. Uh, and if I recall, you, you suggested that, that was a better result than could have been achieved in bankruptcy court. Um, That's right. So I'm curious about the, um, why that is uh, and how perhaps if you could talk a little bit about trustees and, and how potentially the appointment of a trustee could have uh, dispossessed the Sacklers from involvement in um, the Purdue, if not nothing else. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the it starts to get a little um, technical, but but kind of the high level would be that um, a bankruptcy court doesn't, so a bankruptcy court has some powers, doesn't have other powers. So two things the bankruptcy court can't do is it can't typically interfere in the ordinary course business of a debtor. 
and it has very little, if any, authority to interfere in the business um, goings-on of a debtor once they have emerged from bankruptcy, right? So if you envision the Sacklers filing for bankruptcy, you could certainly imagine a court saying during the pendency of this case, you Sackler debtor will not um, engage in any opioid businesses. But the moment that they eventually emerge from bankruptcy, you know, presumably now this Sackler is going to be poorer than they are today. They're going to be motivated to make money. And the one thing they really know how to do well is sell a lot of opioids. They're going to start a new opioid business, right? It seems at least plausible or the consult or they'll do something like that. So, you know, that I think is something that had the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy, there would have been very little, if anything, that a court could have done to prevent them from um, engaging in the opioid businesses in the future. Now, you're right that uh, potentially a trustee, you know, so a trustee at the very least could say during, you know, the pendency of this case, I, trustee, am running the case. And so you Sacklers, you know, we pushed you off to the side, but eventually the bankruptcy ends and maybe the maybe the company is liquidated, in which case it no longer exists. But if it's reorganized, then, you know, who's to say that the Sacklers don't kind of come back and continue to, to manage the, uh, the, the company. So I think in getting some of these voluntary agreements, and I, I, um, the Sacklers agreed to a lot of these things because they knew on the other side of their agreement to do these things was the civil immunity that they were seeking. And so this isn't coming from the goodness of their heart at all. This is, you know, very strategic on their part. Um, but ultimately, what creditors wanted, they wanted a lot of things, as you said. But one of the things that was very important to creditors, and it came up in meetings, and it came up in, you know, documents released by the unofficial, or the, pardon me, the, the uh, official committee of unsecured creditors, um, was they wanted the Sacklers out of the opioid business. And so as part of this... Um, as part of the the kind of overall plan, the Sacklers are divesting themselves of all of their opioid businesses all over the world, and they're agreeing not to get into the opioid business again. Great. Uh, I know one of the other things that people seem to want uh, is for the um, the Sacklers to feel financial pain to give up their uh, enormous uh, enormous wealth. Um, and uh, and you argue in the paper that um, that they end up giving up much more wealth um, voluntarily in exchange for this what we call a third party release, this immunity to sort of liability um, uh, by contributing uh, money to the case, mm-hmm. and um, that this was much more than uh, that creditors could have received had the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy. Uh, and so this might not be obvious to, to some people. Can you explain um, why couldn't the you know why why couldn't creditors get at every single dollar that uh, you know Richard Sackler and uh, and everybody else that people feel are responsible for the opioid crisis? Why couldn't they get every last dollar? Sure, sure. Uh, so there are really kind of two primary barriers to uh, getting at every last dollar, as you put it. One is, <clears throat> excuse me, one is the way that the Sacklers held their money. They held it in what are known as spendthrift trusts. I'll explain that in just a second. And the other is, um, relates to the kind of the real strong claims that 
creditors had against the Sacklers and the limitations on those claims, specifically statutes of limitations. So kind of taking them in turn, um, right? So a spendthrift trust is a pretty standard estate planning mechanism that is, you know, been recognized under American law for over a hundred years. Uh, and what it basically does is it makes it very challenging for creditors to get at the value, any money, any property that's held by that spendthrift trust. And the kind of, you know, underlying policy argument for spendthrift trusts has to do with freedom of alienation. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I start a company and, and the company, you know, is worth a zillion dollars. And now I want to give that money to my heirs and I decide that I'm going to give it to them. But, you know, in the same way that I could give it to them over a period of time, or I could give it to them with certain conditions attached, one condition that American law allows uh, wealthy people to, um, to attach is that that interest cannot be voluntarily disposed of and creditors can't attach it. And so that's typically what a spendthrift trust is. Again, in layman's terms, right, I basically the argument is I don't have that money. The trust holds that money. And so if you're suing me, then you can't, I, I can't access that money except under the conditions that, uh, that the person who gave it to me allows me to use it. And you, a creditor, can't get access to that money. Um, and so that, you know, is in some ways really very, very unfair and particularly for involuntary creditors, tort victims. But, um, you know, spendthrift trusts are pretty common. Uh, they're, they're commonly used among wealthy people. They're also kind of, people don't think about it, but something like their individual retirement account is basically treated as a spendthrift trust. If you file for bankruptcy or if you have some kind of liability, a creditor cannot get the money that you put in your IRA or the money that you put in your 401k. So, so you know, spendthrift trusts kind of have their, um, have their place, Um so that's kind of one issue, really, is, is the existence of this money in spendthrift trust. The other issue is, relates to fraudulent transfer uh, and the statutes of limitations. So to kind of explain what a fraudulent transfer is, it, it sounds worse than it probably is in a lot of cases. So uh, a fraudulent transfer in bankruptcy language basically means, and, and this is really a constructive fraudulent transfer, basically means that if a um, if a debtor transfers money to some third party and doesn't receive equivalent value in exchange, transfers money or property and doesn't receive equivalent value in exchange, and they do so when they're insolvent, uh, then that is considered a fraudulent transfer and that money can be clawed back into the estate. And the idea behind fraudulent transfers are if I know someone is, you know, coming after me for all my money and I give it to my cousin, you know, for safekeeping say, uh, that's not something that we want. And so, you know, fraudulent transfer is kind of meant to uh, prevent me from giving it to my cousin for safekeeping. And then I come back to him in six months or a year and, and uh, I get the money back. Um, so the biggest problem with fraudulent transfer, though, is there's a statute of limitations. So fraudulent transfer was really the strongest claim that creditors had against Purdue because, you know, 
trying to make the case that Richard Sackler, for instance, was directly responsible for my, you know, cousin's opioid overdose when Richard Sackler never sold me anything or my cousin anything. And, you know, there was a doctor who prescribed and a pharmacy that filled the prescription and, and, you know, my cousin took the, you know, overdosed on the pills. There's certainly a lot of difficulty in making a case in any individual case that, you know, the Sacklers are liable for any particular death. But these fraudulent transfer claims are a lot stronger because it was pretty clear that in the years running up to the bankruptcy, Purdue transferred billions of dollars, something like 10 or $11 billion from the company to the Spendthrift Trusts, and it got nothing in return. So the, the argument would be that these Spendthrift Trusts should all, the, the money that went to the Spendthrift Trust should all be reclaimed. Biggest problem here is that spendthrift, uh, pardon me, fraudulent transfer actions have a statute of limitations of, say, six years. Um, and the much of the money was actually uh, transferred outside of that's before that six-year period. So a lot of the transfers were actually just beyond the reach of creditors, unfortunately. So that, uh, I'm sure, is what contributes to this feeling of unfairness. That That's right. The Sacklers uh, not even just, you know, um, were insolvent at the time of the transfer and got no reasonable value, but uh, but arguably moved the money with the intent to hinder collection activities from creditors. Um, and uh, and this, this statute of limitations period is the, this barrier to recovery Um so that's the source of you know, people's feeling of unfairness, right? These are solid claims uh, that uh, were just limited by, uh, you know, a statute of limitations. Uh, what, what is the solution to this problem in uh, this bankruptcy, if there is one, or to sort of future cases? Yeah, so I think that the, um, you're absolutely right that the statute of limitations uh, presented both a huge obstacle and a lot of unfairness. Uh, I think in this case, what ended up happening is the amount of money and, you know, the case is still on appeal and the Sacklers have since offered some additional amount of money, but excuse me, it's money that they offered to pay over a period of say 20 years. So, you know, the present value of that is not all that much. Um, but in general, the kind of initial settlement offer that was accepted and approved by the bankruptcy court was pretty close, right? It was $4.3 billion, was pretty close to the $4.1 billion that, um, of fraudulent transfer liability that was within the six-year period. So it kind of set you know, a limit to some extent on the amount that uh, the Sacklers were able to settle for, but... Uh, what ended up happening in this case was you had the, um, the existence of these trusts and the different companies and the different individuals were within the case itself. Basically, all those barriers were dissolved. And so rather than trying to chase after Trust A or Sackler B, uh, the Sacklers and all their trusts got together and said, we're going to put in $4.3 billion, and that is the amount uh, you know, and we tie that to the 4.1 of liability that they have, but that's the amount that, that you're getting. And so that I think is a, is a, you know, better outcome financially than I think creditors may have otherwise, uh, received. Um, you know, as far as kind of 
fixing this problem in, in future cases. So I'd say one real big way to fix this is the Sacklers manufactured all of these collection difficulties, and they did so by taking their money and putting it in spendthrift trusts, many of which were located outside of the United States. So U.S. law uh, does permit people to get to spendthrift trusts if they are sh- if it's shown that the money that was put in the spendthrift trust was a fraudulent transfer. But international law, and these trusts were located in the island of Jersey, which is a part of the United Kingdom, um, that doesn't apply. And judgments that are uh, obtained in U.S. courts don't apply over there. So I argue in my paper that if you are going to transfer your money into a spendthrift trust that doesn't, in a jurisdiction that doesn't recognize U.S. judgments, then you should have a much longer statute of limitations period, uh, and there should be a presumption that what you did was trying to avoid um, U.S. creditors getting at the money. As it seemed to be here. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we're, uh, we're running out of time, and so I just wanted to ask you... Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that, like you know, that you think is sort of a, a key part of your paper that you want us to make sure that uh, that listeners have a chance to hear about? Yeah, I, I so I think that you know what's important to remember here is that creditors in this case really did um, suffer, obviously, but they I think managed to recover. Uh, more than they would have had um, had the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy. I think all of that is to say that there are certain issues with the bankruptcy code, maybe, and the way that it deals with problems presented in this case that um, are very challenging to deal with. But I don't know that it was. Uh, I think that there is a lot of effort to pin, you know, blame on the way that the judge ran the case or the way that you know representatives creditors didn't do a good enough job i think that the answer is a lot more complicated than that um well that then tees up my final question which is uh you know uh what does the future what does your future research agenda hold and are you going to solve these problems in bankruptcy law for us in masterworks yeah well i'm uh, i'm certainly hopeful um so uh you know my next paper um is kind of looking at uh mass tort bankruptcies and and specifically looking at, I think that there is a lot of talk in these cases about all the things that companies are doing wrong. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that. But what I look at is um, things that gov- ways that governments are intervening in these cases and doing so in ways that even though they claim to be intervening on behalf of individual victims, uh, they end up really kind of getting into it for themselves. And so, you know, it's it's interesting that in the Purdue case, uh, something like 85% of the total money that the Sacklers are paying out is not going to individual victims, it's going to the states. Uh, and though the states say that they're going to use it on various opioid addiction, uh, you know, kind of mitigation measures, uh, I think that it's an open question whether they will. And and certainly if uh, the experience in the tobacco cases in the 90s is any indication that, you know, that may well not be the case. Uh, So my future research kind of looks at government intervention and looks at, you know, maybe intergovernmental competition 
between, say, state governments, federal government, and local governments in kind of getting money from these mass, mass tort visas and, and how do individual creditors fare and all that. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to reading those projects. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, this has been um, Matthew Brockner talking with William Organet about uh, his new article in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, A Bitter Result, Purdue Pharma, A Sackler Bankruptcy Filing, and Improving Monetary and Non-Monetary Recoveries in a Mass Tort Bankruptcy. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks very much. Vitamin pills keep me from getting wealthy and after all